and welcome to this edition of the Joyful Friar podcast. I'm Father Nathan, your host. I'm thinking of this as the vacation edition of the Joyful Friar because I am at the beach. That's why I'm out of uniform. I don't have my Dominican habit on at the beach. Uh, but today we're doing the second of a three-part trilogy on a story that we call Paul, who was minus four man. That story goes all the way back. The dream goes back to 2015. And my friend John Sanchez is here. He was the prayer partner who assisted with that crossing uh, several years ago now. So thank you for being here, John. You're welcome. We already went into the details of his story. The basics were um, he was he and three friends had just graduated high school. They were 18 years old. They were in, uh, this was happening in the early 1950s, somewhere in upstate New York, uh, early summer. And he was on a double date, had borrowed his grandmother's car. They were out of an evening. He said the, um, the gal that he was with was really more what he called a gal pal. The two in the back seat were, had romance on their mind and wanted him to take them somewhere dark. So he hadn't had anything to drink. Um, but he pulled the car off into a side road in a woods. And at one point on this, it, all they had was the um, the light from the headlights. It was completely dark otherwise. At one point, he could feel the car uh, on what he thought was the wooden bridge. As it turned out, it was a pier that ended in a lake. And he drove his grandmother's car off the end of a pier uh, and he and his passengers drowned. So really tragic story, especially in that they're so young and just had graduated and their whole life ahead of them, all of that. So he came to us in a dream and John assisted with that uh, passage. So today we've already told the story in the previous podcast, but today, John, you and I are uh, together under the heading of compassionate response in other words, in the time that this story has been in the public, uh, of course, it's in it's in the print book and it's also an audio uh, book people have read or listened to it. And I've gathered up a few thoughts that have come to me from people who have heard this story and it it touched their heart in specific ways. So that's going to be our uh, focus today. But you were pretty new at this at the time, right? That was the first day on the job. It was, <laughs> it was, but it was, it, was your, it was the second of two, wasn't it? Second of two. Yeah. So oftentimes when I schedule with prayer partners uh, to do this work, we uh, schedule sufficient time that we can do two in a row, which usually means scheduling a two hour block of time. So you had just finished helping with your very first one. And then along came Paul minus four man, correct? Yes. So give us a little bit of what you remember about that. I remember it visually. I remember, you know, thinking of Paul what, waiting by the lake, waiting for somebody to come along. And, you know, it reminded me of some dreams I've had where I was waiting for something. I had this one time I had this dream about waiting for this train to come. And it never came. I was just waiting there. And the funny thing was that I was at the time I was in college. I took this class about dreaming. Mm -hmm. And it was like a three-week course. It was like one of those quick classes. But for the whole time, I couldn't remember any of my dreams. But the only dream I had was that train waiting. 
yes, we're talking about compassion, which means the word means to suffer with. And obviously it's a tragic story. You made yourself available to it without really knowing what you were getting into. Um, and then once you're in it, it um, it's a very evocative story. It has a lot of emotion in it. I'm just wondering if you recall how it stirred compassion in your own heart. When I was hearing about the story, I, 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 can, I could kind of visualize it. You know, I visualized him, visualized him waiting by the by the lake, waiting for somebody to come. And I knew he was alone. And I know that feeling myself of waiting alone, waiting for somebody to come. Since it happened in the 1950s, it was interesting because you wonder, like, how long has he been waiting there? You know, mm -hmm. um, and we were like in 2015. And what was that 65 years? Well, he died before either of us was born. It does make you wonder about how the afterlife were purgatory for Catholic people like you and I. I grew up with the notion that some people spend a lot of time there or a short time there. And the way that it was presented to me was that that was a function of your sinfulness and that it was like a, a prison sentence or something that you had to serve your time before you uh, could advance is that a part of your thought at all yeah it was it was it did sound like a purgatory it's he was waiting voluntarily there was nothing that was really keeping them there except his own guilt or you know he felt responsible for the death of those people of the other three it made me realize that a lot of us put ourselves in similar situations where we're waiting for something we're waiting for someone to get us uns. I know you don't use the word stuck anymore, but to get us out of that space that we're in. And to bring oh, he's, a, he's in the first book, and I did use the word stuck, did use the word stuck. on that in the subtitle. And I do believe that he was stuck. He was grinding away in a way that suggests spinning wheels, like stuck in the mud. Uh, yes. He wasn't making any progress. He wasn't making any progress. And I've been there. I uh, I see a lot of that happen on this side of heaven and earth where people are waiting for something, something yeah. to change, something to, someone to bring them out of it. Right. Um, it was very, it was all very human feeling. Well, one irony was that he described himself as a very law abiding guy. He thought of himself as a barely above average student. He pretty much described himself as no bright light, but, but he was somebody that if he applied himself could, comprehend and and learn he was trustworthy i mean his grandmother entrusted him with his car because he had earned trust because he was an, an obedient guy he 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 appreciated systems and rules and saw that they mostly made sense anyway that you only make life more difficult if you go out of your way to break the rules and then it, it just it struck him as so ironic that that somebody that was so um law and order could do something as careless as drive a car off the end of a pier. It didn't make sense to him. You had told me to, at some point, tell him to bring some, to invite somebody along who he loved in life um, to come for him. And the naturally thing, he was driving his grandmother's car. So naturally I thought, oh, the grandmother would come. But it was his high school principal which was very unlikely. That was out of the blue. Sometimes people come along in our lives where it's not who we expect. It seems like these people come out of nowhere to change our lives. If that's something I've experienced, 
I really thought it was going to be the grandmother. I was surprised. It was fitting in that he really had a great respect for authority. And the mm -hmm. most recent authority in his life was his high school principal. He'd only yeah, been in high exactly. school for a week or so. But, but I did want to make the point that I really don't understand purgatory, the Catholic notion of it in terms of a penal colony or, you know, serving your sentence. I didn't even as a child when it was presented to me that way. It just seemed to, I liked the idea of purge means to cleanse. And one of the ways it was presented to me as a child was sort of uh, cleaning up before you go out, right? My, my family would once in a great while go to a restaurant. But in the 60s, when we went out to a restaurant, we didn't go in just whatever we were wearing. And we were a family of five kids. It took some doing for everybody to shower and put on their better clothes and stuff. Anyway, I, I um, it just seemed to me that this was a really nice guy who I'd like to know better, who had one, <laughs> one really tragic mistake at the end, and it really stumped him. My view of purgatory coming from a Hispanic culture was that it was a, a bad place. And I think that's still seen in a negative way. For me growing up, I kind of joked that for me, purgatory would be the worst experience I can imagine. So for me, it was waiting. It would be like waiting in the D, at the DMV to get my license, waiting in a long line. And you know, were you a part of one of those? We did have somebody, I think it was Hal that described his experience. It was like the DMV. It was a place that... He said it wasn't bad, really. It was just a place nobody really wanted to linger and nobody had bothered to decorate it. It might have had some plastic plant in the corner and that was about it. I, I don't remember that case, but uh, that does sound like something I would imagine. You know, recently my, my father passed away. I was talking to my family, you know, um, trying to teach them what I know about purgatory, that it's not a bad place. It's a place where you're waiting. And my dad did receive the last rite, so I told him that he didn't have to endure purgatory. It, it, it's not a bad place. It is kind of like a waiting room, and it's voluntarily from what I understand. Well, I don't even use the word except when Catholic people kind of draw it out of me, because many of the audiences that I'm in front of are not Roman Catholic necessarily. I've seen so much of growth and healing and arriving at the truth of things, understanding what's true. And that really does bring us back to the process that Paul engaged in largely because you prompted him. He was grinding and grinding and grinding, and he he was the one who was the recent high school graduate that his experience reminded him of Nathaniel Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter and Hester Prynne, who was an adulteress and had to wear an A uh, to brand herself so that everybody knew her sin. And that's what he did to himself. He thought of himself as minus four man because he had robbed the earth of four young lives. And the way I brought him out of that was to take the three out of the equation and realize that he was the only one still there. I mean, it would have been different if there was all, all of them were there. I mean, we have dealt with people, uh, cases where um, there were a bunch of people there, like a group, that like they formed a group of uh, people who had similar experiences. I didn't know, that, know this at the time, but he was by himself and that, you know, I had to ask him where, where everybody else was, where did you think they were or, well, you're the one that called it to his attention. Yes. You said to him, wait a minute, you're, you've made a presumption that you're minus four, but it sounds like the other three are not with you. Is that correct? Well, they must have already crossed, in which case you would be minus one man. That was the beginning, I think, of him getting unstuck. He shifted the first premise of the argument. Oh, he entertained a new thought because you helped lead him. Yes.
That's the way I see it. I I know about you that you're uh, a big-hearted man. You're you're a compassionate soul. I mean, everybody's got some of that, but I think you have more than your share uh, of compassion for other people. You don't have to agree with me <laughs> if you don't want to, but it's my <laughs> And don't you do hospital visitation in Stanford Hospital? Yes, I do. I rest my case. Not everybody <laughs> goes through the training to go and seek out people who are suffering and put yourself in their space and somehow cheer them or at least be with them. I've talked to people that, you know, who've had near-death experiences and who've had situations in, in their life where somebody has come to rescue them. There's so many stories that I have. It seems like almost like I was, I would have thought I was talking with, with one of the afterlife people. Um, it felt so similar to those stories about people having some sort of regret or something that was on their mind and they really needed to let go of something. Yes. Well, and sometimes that can happen well with with a stranger like you that walks in with a badge into a hospital room and says, hi, I'm John. Uh, how are you? <laughs> they might open up to you in a way they wouldn't to family members or other people. It is amazing. And I, I, I really can't believe that the responses I've gotten from people on visiting in them, sometimes they're just so grateful just to have somebody to talk to and to listen to them. And I, I try my best to, you know, if they need time, you know, talk about something. One time I met somebody named Gail. <laughs> That's probably all I can say. But I, I told her about the Wizard of Oz and what Gail meant and, you know, Dorothy and all that from your first book. <laughs> it really does feel like some of those experiences at the hospital that feel similar to this. Yeah. Well, as as things progressed, you did um, help him identify a strength. He was good at numbers. Do you remember how he talked about uh, uh, words? That's why they have to have dictionaries. And when you look up a word in the dictionary, the same word could have five or six different meanings. Yeah. Use numbers instead that nine is always one less than 10 and one more than eight. That numbers mm -hmm. are a whole lot more precise than words mm -hmm. ever are. And so you moved his whole problem away from logic and, or at least word logic, reasoning with language to make sense of his circumstance. You shifted it over to numbers. I still can't believe that worked. <laughs> you challenged him to think of it in terms of algebra. After that, he really didn't need much to get along. All you had to say was now, you remember how this works, don't you? Now all we need to do is add plus one on both sides. X minus one plus one equals Y plus one, and then we'll have solved it. It must be your grandmother that's coming for you. And he said, no, wait a minute. <laughs> it's Mr. Wambacher. I never, I kind of wonder how, how much they knew of each other. I mean, like... I remember my high school principal, but I'm not sure if she remembered me. I don't um, remember me. I mentioned her in my first book, and she wrote me a letter. And oh, is really that two letters actually? It's very sweet. She's a nun, and uh, she when she heard about the work that I do, she said that must be very very difficult for you. So I'm going to pray for you. So I just thought that was sweet because there are moments when it is difficult. On the one hand, it's joyous, but there it, there are difficult aspects to it. Yeah. Well, it, he did that. His his high school principal, for our viewers and listeners that don't remember, the high school principal, Mr. Wambacher, showed up holding a football jersey 
purple and gold with a one on it from their school and said, put this on. And it was, it was like, kind of like watching him become a superhero. You know, he put on the cape. I imagine that happening in like a basketball gym for some reason. Oh, did you? I imagine that in a basketball gym and other people were around in my mind when he pictured it. Hmm. That's how I imagined it. Well, however we imagined it, it worked for him. He he put on the one and that enabled him to cross the equal sign <laughs> into, into, and now he calls himself Captain Infinity. Remember that? We, we asked his permission to use a story and said, so are you still... Uh, plus one man and he said no I don't think so I think I'm Captain Infinity so I thought that was a sweet thing to go all the way from grinding away at how this ter terrible thing could have you know how I could have subtracted four lives to thinking of himself as Captain Infinity that seems purgatorial to me <laughs> moving through healing cleansing however you want to think about it and now being free to get on with it and I think the compassion is contagious in a way because he was checking up on me afterwards yeah tell our our audience a little bit more about that he seemed paul seemed very friendly right and i'm, I'm sure it was lonely for him waiting all that time but as you said he talked to when was that how did that come up again oh you're doing the um the permission you get permission for the book yes we he always said, go back and ask these people in a second session is it okay for us to tell this story publicly? And, and then he said he was, was it haunting or spooking? No. He called, he, he, um, well, he was being facetious, but he said yeah, he was haunting you. He knows that he's a ghost or a spirit or something. And he, he's hanging around you. He called it haunting. Yes. He was, I, you know, and after that, I could feel his presence every once in a while. And he, he did care. He did care. And he, he would check up on me and I would, I would feel moments when I felt down about something or it does help knowing that you know, somebody's there. I've prayed for him. I've, I've kept in contact as best as I could as well. And I don't know if people understand that praying for a person isn't just um, sending good wishes into the atmosphere. Praying for a person creates linkage. Yes. Heart to heart. It's not a message in a bottle that you throw in the ocean. It's when you pray for another person, it creates linkage. And I don't say that just as a Catholic priest, but I think that's just a universal law because prayer or even what we, uh, whatever, whatever language people might use for interceding for another, or wishing well in a way that involves spirit, uh, it creates linkage. And it did between you and he. I did feel similar experiences to that linkage, you know, like in a way. Uh, there was a lady in my church where I work at a church in Menlo Park, and there was this woman that had Alzheimer's. One day, it was just, it was during this, we had this really long heat wave one time. Her caregiver was there, brought her to the church because we had air conditioning. <laughs> so she was just, you know, she was just there, her caretaker was lighting candles, and I was just sitting there, and, you know, I'd talk to her every once in a while about, you know, but we really can communicate because he was always, he was always happy to see you, you know. But then we were just quiet for a second. I just sat next to her and I thought, oh, someday we're going to talk again. We're going to talk again in heaven. And she's going to be herself, no longer with Alzheimer's. And we're going to talk about our lives. And I think that that linkage is that we make those connections here on earth as well. 
yeah. you know, when we pray for somebody, when we talk with somebody, when we visit somebody in the hospital, when we, it all comes back at the end, you know. I call that joyful hope. There's a prayer in the Catholic Mass that it interrupts the Lord's Prayer. We, you know how Catholics will stop it, deliver us from evil, and the Protestants mm -hmm. keep going and say, for thine is the kingdom. There's a little prayer in the middle when we say Mass that says, deliver us, Lord, from every evil. Grant us peace in our day. In your mercy, keep us free from sin. Protect us from all anxiety as we wait in joyful hope for the coming mm -hmm. of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that, that one is real important to me because, the, especially after I started this podcast with the rather audacious name, the Joyful Friar in it. Uh, it's it's St. Dominic's nickname, not mine, but I am kind of appropriating it to myself. And I, I don't think it's possible to be joyful every last minute, uh, but that doesn't mean you can't wait in joyful hope. And that's what you were saying to this woman. You still have Alzheimer's and I can't do anything about that, but we can wait in joyful hope for the day when that's gone. And when everything is said and done and you and I can be friends. It that to me is an example of joyful hope. It was very peaceful after that. I mean, she passed away later on, but uh -huh. I, you know, I, I still pray for her. And I started doing this prayer for people that had died when I was a little kid. And, you know, I tell that story on stages and stuff whenever I'm doing major talks that uh, on the one hand, the oddity of this particular modality of people coming in the night and then allowing them to speak through with a prayer partner and write books about it. It's it, before all that, I was just falling asleep at night, praying for the people that had died that day. When we used to go to, the, when my dad would take me to the bank, they had those zigzaggy ropes, kind of like they do at amusement parks, where you have to keep going in and out and in and out until you get to the front. I thought purgatory must be like that. And so I prayed for whoever was agonizingly at the front, but the line wasn't moving. Yeah. yeah. Anybody that needed one more prayer, that mine would kind of push them over the edge and and then I'd pray for whoever just got there because nobody wants to walk in and see a long line. And, you know. <laughs> and then I'd pray for whoever's ever in the middle. And, you know, I had this whole thing going on. Well, I wanted to mention while we're on this topic, this uh, uh, compassionate response, that there are other people besides Paul who um, had an accident that caused their death. But there, are, But then there are people who had an accident that they survived, but caused the death of others, or maybe a uh, uh, life-altering injury. Or there's lots of people that have had something that they did, uh, perhaps even accidentally, or perhaps just unwisely in a fit of anger or something. There's plenty of people, some of whom might be listening to this podcast, who did a thing they wish they hadn't done that that negatively impacted the lives of others, maybe in ways that were quite severe. And I just wanted to say, um, you might want to find this story in Afterlife Interrupted Book One, go back to it, and um, start working on, can you let it pass somehow? Can you live in the present moment rather than having that past moment dominate? That's really what had happened to Paul. Uh, uh, and he was outside of time, I think. He, we got nothing from him that suggested that he was frustrated that decades had passed <laughs> since no. his accident. He wasn't really, it was time was not the issue. It was just the frustrating lack of movement. He couldn't get any uh, traction. 
and he felt like he needed to make sense. That that dovetails with the last thing that I wanted to make sure that we brought up in this little podcast was the idea that this life between now and your last breath must make sense. A lot of movies do that to us. There, Many of them are fictional stories where the writer gets to write the ending and it's very satisfying when the struggles that you've followed a fictional character through get resolved in the last chapter or the second to the last chapter. Um, and sometimes in fiction, if that resolution doesn't happen and the book ends, you feel like throwing the book at the author. <laughs> what the hell? I spent all this time with this book and, and it ends like this. Um, but sometimes life does. It it does end in ways that don't seem to make sense or or at least episodes in life, if not the end of life, parts of a life, a job you left or, you know, or a relationship that ended in a particular way or whatever. Some things don't get tied up nicely and you're left with this sense of uh, frustration that they're not complete somehow. What I would say to people is um, don't demand of life. Well, this is me giving advice and you don't have to take it if you don't want, but this is the way I live my life. I've given up demanding that every chapter or episode makes sense. Or being angry at people because the impact that they had on my life was irrational or nonsensical or stupid or something. Uh, I'd rather just let it be. Um, Do you remember that in the second uh, time that we were with Paul, he mentioned that he spent part of his time since he had been with us just sitting next to the lake that he died in? Yes, he saw it differently then after he had gone. He saw it as a peaceful place now, not as a place of tragedy. About Paul telling us about sitting next to that lake, that after uh, our encounter with him and his crossing, that part of what he chose to do, or I think maybe even was directed to do by helpers, was just come sit down over there. And then he talked about watching the sun rise and set on it. Uh, he talked about, about bugs and frog, the way it smelled. He just got used to this place where he had died being a part of God's creation with a life of its own and with a certain loveliness and peace about it. And it seemed like it was redemptive. It was turning a place of horror and tragedy and frustration, uh, all of which was in his imagination. I mean, he didn't make it up, but it was in his mind uh, into something that was could be seen from another point of view. It was a, a place of a, a peace, you know, and didn't have the negative connotation. Of Sometimes people can do that on their own by simply uh, making a decision and trying something new, meditative and so on. Oftentimes in my life, that's, that's involved the help of a counselor. I, I can get myself into a certain pattern of thought where I don't see any other way to think about a thing and, and, and forget about the possibility possibility that there even is another way it could be thought of and then the other person the counselor or the compassionate listener might just say well yeah but have you thought of this which is what you did <laughs> yeah but have you thought of this and then if if we're humble enough to accept a new idea small miracles can happen <laughs> we might move from spinning our wheels to actually 
getting somewhere. Anything you want to say before we uh, end this part of the trilogy? I think sometimes um, to get out of these cycles of being stuck, we need to keep busy. Like for me, I like to keep busy just to not have time to think about other stuff, you know, that maybe not usually think I shouldn't be thinking about or negative thoughts. I think Paul has chosen to be busy. You know, he has, his compassion has grown to other people as he showed up in some of your other stories as well. Yes. You know, he said he want, at one point he wanted to be like an afterlife helper or he yes. wanted to do what we're doing, but on, on that side or like a greeter. In a way. Now you're doing a tease for the next podcast because that's what I want to go into. He, uh, he, after being helped in our process, uh, we had somebody else who died in an automobile accident who also was kind of uh, in a trauma loop. In his case, he had driven off the side of a raised roadway and rolled down an embankment to his death. And in his afterlife, he kept living the, he said he felt like he was inside a dryer, tumbling. And he created a different kind of looping. His wasn't about making sense. His was just about the physical sensation of bouncing off the roof of the inside of his car. And he was angry at himself for not having worn a seatbelt. Because if he had had a seatbelt, he might not have been that object that hit <laughs> the roof and the floor and the and the windows. Uh, and so he was angry at himself for that. And and Paul was the the guy who came to help. So that was cool. Audience, thanks for indulging us in this vacation edition of the Joyful Friar podcast. I'm Father Nathan. Grateful for your interest and praying for you and for whatever is important in your heart of hearts. Thank you, John Sanchez, for being a part of this show, and we'll see you on the next one. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Joyful Friar. You can visit me at nathan-castle.com. Send me a message by clicking the contact button. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can make a donation by clicking the donate button. See you next time. God bless.